0: Know you waiting on your days to get better. You see a whole like of change with the help of a No matter how big the problem is, God is great. No matter how big the problem is, God is great. Oh, God is great. Yeah, come on, time and time again. You still show us we going. Build us up when we were thin and shine your light where it was thin. Said you never let us down. With your words, we were fine. As we learn through these trials,
1: you remind us why we
0: you waiting on your days to get
2: better? You see change with the help of Hey, how are you? Welcome to Pure Reflections, the podcast, where we talk about motherhood, womanhood, and discipleship. I'm your host, Danielle Thompson, resident in counseling and mentor. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Be sure to hit subscribe and now sit back, relax, and listen as I share what I've learned on my journey. Vanessa, I already told you what this podcast was about, so why don't you introduce yourself a little bit?
0: Hi, my name is Vanessa Rios. I am a recent graduate in mental health counseling. I'm also a um uh, minister, credential minister with the Assemblies of God in the Spanish Eastern District. And I am a clinical supervisor at Mount Sinai West. I also um, help run a church. I'm a church administrator, so I'm basically second in command. If Some, some will say I'm first in, co- in command, um, but I am a single woman also, and I live in Chelsea area of New York.
2: Yes, and Vanessa and I know each other because we went through grad school together, and we just maintained relationship, and I love her. She's an awesome person.
1: I love you too, girl. Yes.
2: So, Vanessa, we're just going to dive right in, Mm-hmm. and I already told you that this series is called Journey to Life, and it's just honestly an opportunity for you to really reflect on um, where you've been, where you are, and where you're going. Okay. So- Um, The first question is, what was life like for you growing up?
0: Um, Life like for me growing up was uh, a bit tumultuous. Um, My mom is from the Caribbean. She's from St. Vincent. My dad is Puerto Rican. They met here. Um, But it started off a little bit tumultuous because my mom was very naive when it came to things like drugs and stuff like that and turns out that my dad who was a Vietnam vet was addicted to opiates alcohol and stuff like that and so from the very beginning um even though they didn't um fight there was this kind of like um issue in the home where my mom and dad would argue and Um, not nothing physical, but it was a difficult time Um, when I was very young, my dad, we moved to Brooklyn for a short time because my dad had stolen the rent money and, um, we had to like move to a room, but then after a few years, we moved back to Manhattan. Okay. Um, so you would imagine my mom's from the West Indies. My dad's from the Puerto Rico, from Puerto Rico. Um, I had a very, um, Caribbean home. (laughs) Yeah, I learned Spanish actually at my babysitter's house, who was Ecuadorian and spoke no English. So some of the Spanish that I speak uh, is not much like Puerto Ricans or broken Spanish. It's more. um, It's a different, uh, I would say, dialect of Spanish compared to my heritage. Um, At the age of 11, I was diagnosed with lupus. And um, that was a tough journey also. During that time, my mom um, left my dad and also uh, entered into a very uh, violent relationship with a man that she thought was going to help her. And that was very difficult on our family. Um, It caused a lot of distress in the home. alongside the stuff that I was already dealing with it caused a very stressful home life it was the first time that I've ever witnessed anything like that Mm -hmm. um and he was really really violent um he was also sexually abusive um to me uh which came out later I was able to tell my mom later um when I felt it was safe right um but it was a situation where um, my aunt intervened. And then finally, I kind of, you know, intervened in a way where um, he was out the house. So by the age of, from the age of maybe nine to 15, um, we grew up, my sister and I dealt with some of this domestic violence. We were exposed to this domestic violence in the situation at home. Um, I always did very well in school. I always loved school. I always excelled in school despite um, my many um, uh, uh, health crises. Um, mm-hmm. I was a good student, uh, maintained good grades, honor roll, graduated uh, top of my school, and graduated high school with scholarship for college, Um So I was really focused on, um, that was kind of my focus. During the, at the age of, I would say, 12 years old, um, well, let me back up a little bit. Uh, When I was younger, I was taken to the church by the same babysitter who loved my sister and I,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, and she used to take us to church, a Pentecostal church, which is where I got my, my credentials from, the Assemblies of God the pentecostal church under the assemblies of god that was in manhattan um, and that's kind of where i god kind of kept me i accepted god christ at the age of 12 baptized at the age of 14 um all the while all this craziness was going at home my mom at the time was not saved so i basically made a very early decision to follow the lord to seek the lord on my own and i think um it was the only thing that really kept me um, enduring during all the things that I had been experiencing as a very young child, um, as a a person that was experiencing um, abuse because the same babysitter's husband who was, she loved us so much, but her husband was the person that was was abusing my sister and myself.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: So, and all these things that I had experienced, there was a part of me that was always very conscious that God was around. And I can remember as early as five years old as feeling a presence, feeling God's presence, kind of protecting me and stuff like that. So this idea of God and and Jesus being around was not foreign to me. It was strange because um, as young as I was, I can feel that god was protecting me and god was around me and that um he was the one comforting me and so as young as i was i can remember staying up nights studying the word and finding god in the pages of the word and writing down chapters i believe i almost finished the whole bible except for the book of revelation when i was 14 Mm -hmm. and that was the first time me going through the whole bible and throughout the years i kind of gone through the bible um many times and um, so I there was this a lot of stuff going at home but there was also this calm within me about where I was and who I was and stuff like that not to say that I wasn't dealing with insecurities and weaknesses and sadness and loneliness but none of that um, made me Cope, use coping mechanisms that were um, bad for me or um, that took me down a dark path. I'd never tried drugs. I never tried alcohol. I wasn't interested in doing anything right. like that. Um, so, you know, my, my my childhood was was kind of just that. It was very dysfunctional, very tumultuous. It had a whole bunch of ugly stuff happening and going on. But ultimately, um, the way my life was orchestrated, um, it was really God, like, holding me on, holding on to me. And I remember from a young age praying that prayer that, that God would hold on to me because I know, or I knew even at that age that I wouldn't have the strength to hold on to him. Right. And so I believe that he heard me and I believe that's exactly what he did.
2: That's cool. Well, I want to say two things. Number one, I still haven't read through the whole Bible. (laughs) So kudos to you for doing that at (laughs) such a young age. But number two, you know, so Vanessa is like this type of person where she's just so subtle and humble and calm and tempered and that's pretty much what you're going to get from her every step of the way. Like she, that, it just does not change. Like never seen her angry, never seen her so overexcited, nothing like that. Like she's very tempered in everything that she does. And Vanessa, um, if you don't feel like Sharon is perfectly fine, but your resilience to me is like unmatched, just, just unmatched. And Praise God for that really because like ev- from us having our talks and things like that and just knowing some of the physical things that you went through it's like girl like <laughs> like how nothing but God's grace so i wanted to know if you would be open to just sharing some of you know just some of the physical things that you've had to endured
0: during your um your health journey hmm.
1: um
0: so i was diagnosed I was sick for a couple of years I started showing symptoms I want to say at nine years old um symptoms of like chronic arthritis I was also always very athletic uh I was a track runner early on my mom was in a sport called netball so we were not allowed to like we were like exercise kids we were like Mm -hmm. on the field every weekend during the week for practice um swimming I was a um an athlete, just very um, into that type of life, and um, so for at the age of nine, I began to have these all these symptoms, and no one could find anything. Um, the arthritis was at this point kind of like deformed some of my fingers because I had it so long. My ankles would swell. I couldn't turn my neck. I didn't have full rotation of my neck. My knees. Um, I would. For a girl that had so much um, energy, I would go home after school and just kind of like pass out on the couch. Mm -hmm. Um, And so eventually I went to the hospital. And during that time, lupus wasn't very common. This was um, in the 80s, 88, 89. And so I was admitted to the hospital. I think I was in the hospital for about a month. And still they couldn't find anything. They thought it was um, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and they thought it was Lyme's disease. But basically I left the hospital after that long of a stay without any diagnosis and was just told to go to physical therapy for a while to help some with some of the um, uh, movement in my joints. Eventually um, I was sent to hospital for joint disease And they took all these tests. And so I was diagnosed at the age of 11 with lupus. At the age of 12, I was diagnosed with pericarditis, which is I had developed some um, fluid around the sac of my heart. One of the ways they treat lupus is that they give you high-level steroids. So you Mm -hmm. can imagine, you know, I would be puffed, blown up sometimes. Like I would have like these big... uh, chipmunk cheeks sometimes um but that's kind of what they did when i was in the middle of a lupus flare uh at the age of 14 i had my first kidney biopsy because i started they started to show signs of um some lupus nephritis actually the doctor that did my kidney biopsy is still my doctor till today um dr (laughs) weistak he's a very he's a very kind man um and I have to say that I've been really blessed with excellent doctors. Right. So at the age of 14, I got my first biopsy. At the age of 16, I took 15 rounds of chemotherapy to treat some of the nephritis in my kidneys. Mm. Um, lupus nephritis, uh, which is horrible. Uh, first time I had to cut all my hair off, um, which was devastating. Very. Um, but it was it was fine. Um, I got through that. Um, I didn't do much for the kidney disease, but it kind of held it off for a while. I also had um, issues of um, blood clotting, um, something called uh, thrombocytopenia, where uh, some of my platelets would drop and have issues with low blood count. One of the things that the lupus really um, did in my body was I had, I also had what's called hemolytic anemia where your the lupus or your own body kind of attacks the red blood cells. And Mm -hmm. so it causes this drop in red blood cells. So I often had to be rushed to the hospital with low count, low blood counts and stuff like that. So that was throughout my whole lupus journey. Um, And then at um, during all this time, because of, The prednisone and some of uh, the lupus, I developed what's called um, avascular necrosis of the hips. So basically the joints in my hips had been eaten away because of the the lupus, but also because of the high dose prednisone. A lot of people don't know that prednisone could um, really uh, restrict some of the calcium absorption in your bones specifically the hip bones. And so at the age of 21, I had my first hip replacement. So I have a total hip replacement of the left hip. Mm -hmm. Um, And that turned out fine. As a matter of fact, that night, that was like one of the the most horrible surgeries I've ever endured because after that surgery, the doctor forgot to order me pain medicine. Oh, my gosh. So I endured the whole night without pain medicine. And uh, I was a lot of torture. But um, pretty interesting, pretty interesting. Um, i so
2: graceful about it. <laughs>
0: you know, I, I've, I've learned to endure a lot of pain at a very young age. Right. And so um, my threshold for pain is definitely higher than most people. Right. Um, at the age of 22, I had a TIA, which is a stroke on my way to work, which was when I think about how it happened, I could only say it, it was only God because I remember getting on the train, holding my umbrella that day, and I, the umbrella kept falling, and I was like, why does the umbrella keep falling? Like, that's so strange. And when I get on the train, I sit on the train, and I kind of felt like a, heard like a weird noise in the back of my head, mm-hmm. and um, then I felt like part of my face felt kind of weird and all I could say I got up and instinctually I got up and I went to the to the window on the train to see if I can smile like all of this has happened instinctually right right
1: right
0: and I couldn't move half my face and all I could remember was me praying in my mind God help me get up the stairs because my job was right like I got off the train and the building right there on 50 something street was right upstairs from the train and all I can remember was, God, help me get help my legs work so I can get up to my office. And so, like, I felt like all this weird stuff, but I made it, my legs were working and I made it upstairs to my office. And when I got up to my office, I remember my boss saying, Good morning, how are you? And I remember I couldn't speak, so I started to cry.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And she got really, really nervous. So she calls my my sister on the phone, and um, then I had to go to um, immediate care at hospital for joint disease. And within 45 minutes, everything had um, subsided. Um, So that was my first TIA. Um, And what it was is that with lupus, um, you can can have what's called like the phospholipid factor, which Mm -hmm. causes your blood to be a little bit thicker and can cause you to have um, small strokes. Okay. So at 21 years old, I had that. Um, then uh, shortly after that, uh, my kidneys failed for the first time at the age of 22. Uh, my mom was gave me her, one of her kidneys. So my mom, in essence, gave me life twice. And um, the first surgery was October... 22nd, 2002.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. And that uh, transplant lasted five years. Wow. Um, Shortly after, um, well, during that transplant, I had some situations like, um, but nothing, um, nothing horrible to talk about. I believe I had another, TIA um during that time um because they were trying to actually try to save the kidney um and I remember one Mother's Day during those five years I had a TIA and I was it lasted about three three days because I didn't lose all sensation like the first time it was kind of like a progressive thing and then one morning I woke up and like my face was kind of droopy So I called my pastor who was at this point since he'd known me since the age of four was like, has been like a father to me. Um, So he came and he picked me up and he took me to the ER um, at NYU. And they gave me some medication and they sent me home and um, I had to come in like during the week so that they can give me, um, they were trying to, like I said, stop some of the, um, the the lupus activity. So they were giving me some specific medication that they felt would work. And for a while, it did work. But ultimately, I had to be transplanted. So five years, what was happening was I started to develop what was called congestive heart failure, where fluid was backing up into my lungs. mm mm-hmm. What's incredible about that was that if they didn't, if that didn't happen, they wouldn't have found that I had a, a valve problem, a heart valve problem. So during the time that my kidneys failed this this time, um, the cardiologist uh, realized that I had a mitral valve prolapse. Mm-hmm where my the mitral valve was not closing all the way and so blood was backing up the other way which I've never felt and they never heard a murmur but it had to have been something that had existed for a long time
1: right
0: and the only reason why they found it was because my kidneys failed so at this point um they were holding off um of doing the surgery because you know when you're going to have heart surgery they have to put you on bypass and so it can cause some stress on already damaged organs
1: right
0: so they waited till the kidney was kind of like going out and done and then eventually um they did the surgery um, where they prepared my heart valve and thankfully, um, the doctors, my doctor found a doctor that was kind of like top of the line. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have to crack my chest open. Um, what they did was they made a small incision. They made a few small incisions to put in like two cameras. Right. And they went underneath my breast so that they can access the nitro valve and repair it. Wow. So shortly after that, um, the kidneys completely failed. And so I was on dialysis for about eight years during dialysis on during dialysis this time. I, um, I had, uh, still some problems with bleeding, um, during this time. I, I sometimes, one of the times that I was really sick was, uh, the worst time when I, as I spoke to you guys before about my blood level dropping or the hemolytic anemia, um, I had a hematologist, and one time I went in and I was walking around with a blood level of four.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, your hematocrit should be at least eleven, between eleven and fifteen, and I'm walking around with a blood level of four. How was I walking?
2: Nothing Only God but knows. Grace.
0: Yeah. But I was walking around with a level of four. And so when I finally made it to the, when I went into the doctor's office, I always laughed because sometimes we do things and we don't even, um, we don't even think about it until after. Um, I had some symptoms, like the shortness of breath, but, and I was kind of tired, but I felt like, you know, I was on dialysis anyway. I was going to be tired anyway. Right. Um, so it wasn't um, something that was like out of the, out of the ordinary. Um, I was also um, only about 108 pounds, 104, 108 pounds. I was very small. I mean, I'm naturally small. So it wasn't like, it it wasn't something that I was like, you couldn't really tell unless you tested my blood. And so I remember him telling us, you have to go straight to the emergency room. In my house, I always had a go bag because I had been so sick for so long. So I was like, um, no, I need to go home and get my charger. <laughs> <laughs> so literally they, were <laughs> literally the doctor was looking at me like, are you crazy? Like I remember, yeah. So what they did was, cause I had to get my bag. Cause I had a thing about wearing like robes at the hospital, uh-huh. the gowns at the hospital. Cause they never fit me. Um, so I was like, I need to go home and I get my bag, get my, so that I can like text my, my people and they could know where I am. So they literally, and tell you how, how God sends people around you. They literally sent me in a cab home.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I got my stuff when I came back and I was admitted to the hospital. And so, um, you know, I went to the hospital, got some blood and whatever. Um, so that was kind of like during those eight years of being on dialysis, that's kind of what it was like. So that time was like the worst Right. Um, but uh, that's basically what it was like. And on dialysis, I did fairly well after that. Um, I was really careful to maintain a, a good diet. In 2015, I actually became vegetarian. I remember you telling me. And um, and then uh, I remember January 2015, I started a Daniel Fast. And that's how it started, my, my vegetarian diet. Um, Daniel Fast is purely vegan, um, mm. but I felt so amazing because I had been also suffering from chronic migraines, like migraines that were sending me to the hospital, which is also part of the lupus. Um, and so during the fast, I felt amazing. I didn't really have any migraines Um, But I also felt that year like God was going to do something. And so I remember thinking in January, I was like, this is going to be my year. And everybody that asked me, I was like, this is going to be my year. I feel that I'm going to get my kidney this year. Mind you, people had been telling me that it was impossible for me to get a kidney because I had a transplant before. And also because with lupus, you already make um, antibodies because of the lupus. Mm -hmm. And then I had received so many transfusions for the hemolytic anemia that to match my blood was going to be impossible. Right. But I woke up that year with faith that God was going to do something, and I was going to get my miracle. And so I uh, had the did the Daniel fast. Felt amazing. Um, Spoke with my doctor. I added just the eggs and the cheese. So that's why I'm vegetarian, not vegan um but it was like a really difficult year because and i think this is the the time where my faith was tested the most because when you are going to be transplanted you um there's a series of calls that you get so there's a first call that just tells you that there's a match Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and then they have to do with what's called a crass match which they cross match to your antibodies, so it's not necessarily the blood type that is the problem, but the proteins on your blood that causes the the issue. And so I literally receive HCLA blood typing or not? Yeah, no, okay. it's it's the proteins. They're called antibodies.
1: Okay.
0: Um, the proteins that are on on your blood and stuff like that that kind of says whether your blood can mix with other blood or not. Okay. And so I'd received about 13, 14 calls that were matches and, like, 14 no's. Mm. And that was so difficult because it felt kind of like a tease. And I remember, like, one of the last calls, I kind of just, like, broke down and was like, I really felt in all this journey, I had never felt so... um, broken but i feel like during that call i felt like you know when the bible talks about how and hannah um cried with bitterness of soul i felt like i had given everything i had i was finished like my heart couldn't like take it anymore and this was about october it was in october I believe, yeah, it was at the end of October and I was so distraught and I do remember feeling like God telling me, you know, asking me the question, asking me why, what my purpose was for really serving him and seeking him and and doing all these things and that question kind of made me reflect and made me think about my purpose and why I really do serve the Lord. Was it because I felt like he was going to give me something or because he had protected me or because of all the things that he had done? Or was it really because I had loved him and wanted to honor him and wanted to live my life for him? And so after I I wept bitterly and I heard that kind of felt that kind of question in my heart, it changed my perspective on, who I was, because really, in everything that I had endured, I, it hadn't stopped me from serving. It hadn't stopped me from being a teacher, being a mentor. It hadn't stopped me from any of those things. Right. It hadn't stopped me from being who I was and doing all the things that God had placed in my hand to do. And so I had to kind of put that in perspective and think about What if I were never to receive a kidney? Like, what would be, would I be forever bitter about it? Or would I just get up and continue to do what I was going to do? And so that was a a tough night, but it was a night that gave me perspective. And I think sometimes we are so driven by what we want and what we think is going to make our lives better, and we don't appreciate where we are and how good it is already agreed so true and so finally um in november i got a call and i was just kind of like okay they called me this is you know i'm i'm going to like i went to the card i had a cardiology appointment that day and i wasn't going to go but i was like let me go to the cardiology appointment because you never know like i need to go see my card my cardiologist and it's actually good that I went because uh, when they called me the second – they actually called me the second time, and it was a kidney. Really? And the first match was good, and the cross match was good. And so they were like, this is it. How wow. fast can you get here? I, was, I didn't know to cry. I didn't know what to scream. I didn't, I didn't know what to do at that time because it was like so surreal. So I called my pastor. Was like like I said, always say he's like my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, I texted my best friend because she's my emergency contact.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I texted my mom. Mm-hmm. And like I had my go bag and I got my butt in a cab and, and I went to the hospital and Got ready and it was November tenth at twelve mid at uh, midnight November eleventh I was on the table for my kidney transplant.
2: Wow! So you were gracefully broken.
0: Mm-hmm. And um. And I knew that after that, like the real work would begin.
1: Right.
0: And so um. Shortly after that's when I went back to school. Um, I took two years, make sure that I was stable. It took two years. I started school in 2017. Um, in 2019, I became a credential minister, and in 2020, I graduated from my master's program. so since, awesome. Since I've been well, I've I've been able to accomplish all these things and and they're just for the glory of God yeah and
2: nobody would ever know if you never told anyone any of that like every time you tell me it's like wow Vanessa and you know we've talked and I've had you know my own experience with my family member and Mm -hmm. I didn't go through it personally but being a donor for bone marrow was enough for me like I was like I'm good that was a lot for me but you know, it just changes your perspective. And, and that's the epitome of what grace is, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It, that's what you look like. <laughs> absolutely. It's yeah. awesome. So let me ask you this then. So what would you tell your middle school self?
0: My middle school self, you know, at a young age, I ha- I'm, I'm a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why I did well in school is because I'm a perfectionist. Um, my personality type is just that uh, my Meyer Briggs personality is a defender, a protector. That means I, I'm a perfectionist. I want to do everything right. I have a high standard of, you know, moral standard ethics, however you want. I'm a perfectionist. And I'm also, that also makes me kind of a control freak. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I had to learn was just kind is of to kind of surrender my control. Right
2: which is surrender
0: my will, um, and be patient because I had my whole life planned out. I had my whole life planned out. I was going, I was doing well in school. As I said before, I had scholarships for going into college. I was a pre-med major. Mm -hmm. Um, and I became ill a few times and I actually did a blog post recently about it. Um, about how our timing is not always God's timing because life is all about the journey and we forget that it's not about the destination because we're strangers here. Yep. And we get so caught up with achieving these accolades just because. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're not thinking about that. So I would tell my middle school self, that things are going to be okay, yeah, that you don't have to um, be so inflexible that um, you're you're not defined by the accolades that you accomplish, um, even though they're great to accomplish, but unless you really know the purpose of these achievements. It's important to just be patient.
2: Yeah.
0: And I was not patient.
2: It's not easy. You forget that you're even on a journey. Like, I think it's a gift from God to be able to be cognizant that you're on a journey.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know? it Because life can become so um, consumed with the physicality of it and trying to sustain yourself here. That we neglect every other aspect of who we are as a human, mm-hmm. you know. So being able to be mindful, like, listen, this is a journey. This is a process. Taking one step at a time, and knowing that we have the Holy Spirit to be our moral compass and to lead us, it's it's truly a blessing. It's it's a whole gift within itself. And the scary part is forgetting that, because mm-hmm. that's when you lose sight, you lose vision, you lose perspective and then you lose sight of the purpose like you said so i agree with that it's
0: yeah it's tough yeah i was i, I was a little bit of a control freak yeah I think and i think still it am. hurt it hurt <laughs> it hurt me it hurt me in a lot of ways because it made me question my value yeah so
2: how long did it take you to wrestle with that
0: a long time a long time um It took me a long time because it wasn't until, like, I really got in the thick of being on dialysis this last time, through the last eight years, that I was really, um, kind of resolute and just allowing God to do what he does best. Mm -hmm. Um because I was so ill when I had, when I got the the heart surgery, had the heart surgery, I was so ill after that. Um, Like I was literally like 96 pounds. Um, I had this situation where my chest tube fell out after the surgery and they had to like reinsert it at bedside. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you go through all of these things, like, accolades and things like that don't matter what matters to you is being able to touch somebody's life being able to um speak life into people and make sure people know who god is um you value spending time with your friends you value um going to restaurants and enjoying different food like you value life and not so much this plan that you've, you've created for yourself. You value the things that God is, there's a, a a closeness that is um, acquired during the time of uh, great pain and solitude. Um, And in that time I had become so close to God. I had to depend, learn to, Depend on him so much that everything else kind of fell away, and I became a different person. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to be very, and and I think people like me who are perfectionists can can be very prideful. Yep, that's true. And it's because I've always been smart. Not to pat myself on the back. I've always been smart. Um, I've always been an intellectual and not, not really a person that is heart. I've always been more head than Mm heart. And when you're more head than heart, it's easy for you to rationalize things in a way that kind of makes you disconnected. And so, um, When you have that type of illness, and when you're going through the valley, you really learn to depend on God, and you really learn to be at peace with what's going on. You gain a certain degree of wisdom and insight into people. You become more empathetic and sympathetic because... You just can't help it if you're spending time with God, but to acquire these things when you're with him, to acquire wisdom through the word of God, to acquire love and sympathy because you're just with God and that's who he is. Yeah, that's his characteristics. And so when you are in a situation where there's nowhere else to look but up and you're spending time with God, um, those things just, just change you. Hmm. I think the hard part
2: sometimes is that, you know, how quickly we forget, right? Just how quickly we forget all the things that we've been through, all the things that God has brought us through, all the things we've endured. And, you know, there can be life situations that that come and make you complacent. And, you know, I could be honest and say a real fear of mine is to forget God. Like, My prayer is all the time, God, just don't let me forget you. Mm -hmm. No matter where I go or what I do, don't make me forget you. And what happens is, I mean, I know at least for me, I think about my history and where I've come from and where I am now. And I feel like in order for me to be close to God, I have to go back to the same aggressiveness, aggressiveness that I had when I was desperate for him. Mm -hmm. and I need to operate in that way throughout my entire relationship with him and what he showed me is that listen you were really desperate then and you came to me and you needed me and I was there but I don't need you to be desperate to really be close to me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know like you don't have to long for that disparity to have that closeness like that closeness can change that closeness can look different for you and that's the whole aspect of the journey because you get to learn the different parts and the different facets of it as you grow Mm -hmm. so here it is now you know that we have to be intentional about what does our intimacy look like now? You know, we've accomplished some goals. We reached deeper depths and higher heights. What does that intimacy look like for me now? And that's that's the true essence of just embracing that journey because, you know, God is unpredictable and he changes so much. And every time we think we know him, he's like, let me show you something different, you know? And if we're not careful, We could lose that, lose sight of that and just find ourselves in such a place where we just don't know how to get
0: back. Yeah. You know? I don't think God changes. I think how we relate to him changes. When we think about a relationship between a husband and a wife. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first 10 years of their life, you know, they're hot and heavy together and their past is a different type of passion, right? Right. As they mature together, their relationship and how they connect to each other becomes different. Right, right. Because they learn each other's idiosyncrasies, they learn each other's movement, your partner no longer has to say something in order for their other person to know what they're doing. They become, they move in a way that is um, in sync with each other. In sync, right? And so that's how I feel our relationship with God is. That at some point, when you have spent so much time with God, when you have um, been with Him, and 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 He's been an active, pre- you've allowed him to be an active present because God is a gentleman. You've right. allowed him to be an active presence in your life. The relationship becomes not that we, we don't need to put any, we don't need to put intention behind it, but the relationship becomes second nature.
1: Right.
0: Like when I wake up in the morning, I feel God's presence and I'm grateful for his presence. And I pray and I, and i but there's not this need to kind of be so formal. Right. Because I know I know him and he knows me. Like like the Song of Psalms says, I know my lover. And and, and and that's the kind of relationship that God really wants, I think. I, I think He wants us to come to a place where we are so transparent and so vulnerable to Him that even when we feel like we're about to mess up, or that we've messed up, that we can go to Him and say, "Listen, I just don't feel right," or "I messed up," and and there's that type of connectedness
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, that we are not immediately, we don't immediately have this sense of shame, like when before when we were young in the Lord, that we're almost ashamed to go back to Him. Right. Right. And so I think that's how God operates as we learn to become closer to him. Not that we forget our foundations, right? But we don't forget to pray, read and study and and do all those things, but that the relationship becomes almost so natural that he's part of our every movement. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I think that's kind of what God wants.
2: Thank you for listening to another episode of Pure Reflections, the podcast. Be sure to rate, review, hit the subscribe button and share with a friend. For information about today's show, be sure to check out the show notes below. As always, stay focused, be true and be you.